Welcome to BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. We're joined by judges and legal professionals to discuss emerging trends, regulatory updates, and the latest headlines. We'll provide tips to help your law firms and legal departments make the most out of legal tech. Hi, everyone. I'm Jared Crafton, BDO's Forensic Technology Practice Leader. And I'm Daniel Gold, BDO's Managing Director of the Enterprise eDiscovery Managed Services Practice. Let's get started with this episode's exciting topic. All right, welcome to another episode of BDO's Legal Tech Talk. We are joined in the virtual podcast studio by Wendy Hughes, partner over at the labor and employment law firm Fisher Phillips. Wendy, welcome to the program. Well, thank you guys for having me. I look forward to our discussion today. Well, we look forward to having you on here as well. And before we get started, we've got a fantastic topic to talk about. But before we do that, can you just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you do and where you're calling in from today? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a partner with the labor and employment law firm of Fisher Phillips. We have probably more than 35 offices around the country. I am centered in the Philadelphia office. I have been with the firm almost two years. So I started April 2021. Prior to that, I had worked with a more local firm with a national practice that surprisingly, a, a number, I would say, of attorneys in my Philadelphia office at Fisher Phillips used to work at. And so my practice historically in the area of e-discovery focus, sort of centralized on an e-discovery and not really a, a litigator's practice, has been you know, largely in the area of employment defense law, as well as enforcement of restrictive covenants post-employment. So the firm that I worked at prior to Fisher Phillips focused on that. And, you know, I brought that skill set to Fisher Phillips. We do a, the same kind of work, just on a, a larger, more national scale. And we also do labor work as well. I've been focused on e-discovery specifically, probably since around 2009. And that was just, you know, purely out of necessity, needing to master it and understand it. And it eventually just became my sole focus at some point. That's fantastic. And and that's how I've gotten to know you because of your background in e-discovery as well. And, you know, I've known you for being in e-discovery, but one of the things that caught my attention was this article that you had written on the 20th of January. And it's also going to be so our focus during the podcast here today, which was you wrote this article. It's on the Fisher Phillips website. We'll have a link to it in the resources uh, afterward, but it's called WhatsApp Messages may be gone, but never forgotten, at least not by the DOJ, your company's six-step action plan. So I have to tell you, so I'm going to totally geek out and nerd out on this episode, Wendy. This was a, I know it's like, what am I, what did I get myself into, Daniel? This Don't is we a, geek out every day though, really on some level compared to the rest of the population. <laughs> Fair enough, Wendy. Fair enough. <laughs> so I thought this was really great because, you know, what we're going to be talking about today is ephemeral data. And to back into this topic of ephemeral data, I want to take a couple of steps back and talk about what happened during the pandemic. And during the pandemic, we all started working differently, right? We all started living differently and we all started communicating differently. And one of the interesting things that I found was, and there's a lot of data to back me up on this one, is that during all the teleworking that everybody was doing from home, 
we all of a sudden started finding new ways to communicate. So that was over WhatsApp out of necessity to use your word before, right? We started mm -hmm. utilizing other things like Signal, like Wicker, like Cheddar. All of these apps are considered to be these end-to-end -end encryption apps that also offer up this thing called ephemeral communication. So it's here today and it's gone in 60 seconds sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And what I found was, and in, in doing some research in advance of this episode, is that what we have is like 23% of US workers were teleworking from home. Two years later, after the pandemic started, 60% are still working from home. And all of a sudden, the IT teams at all these companies, they all need to catch up, right? right they all need yeah. to figure out what's happening. So I wanted to get your perspective on that, on what you have seen, because you're in the perfect line of work here, right? Especially with your practice, with e-discovery. What do you see as far as the pandemic's impact on how we communicate and more importantly, how it's impacting the data that we are collecting for e-discovery purposes today? Yeah. So clearly, I think everyone realizes if you're working from home, you have to use some sort of, well, you don't have to, but there's been a huge expansion in the use of collaboration tools, right? They don't really necessarily come under what we would think of as ephemeral data or messaging, but clearly we all have not all, but a large percentage of us have moved to something like Teams or Slack, Google Workspace, things like that, where you know we're hosting a lot of video conferences, we're chatting instead of emailing. I know that my chat messages have increased probably exponentially since I've been working from home rather than using emails as I have in the past. And so, you know, that has changed the scope of our e-discovery project. So it's expanded really the volume that we have to look at. And there's other things that we have to consider, right? So there are chats within, you know, these different applications. Data can be stored in different locations. So for instance, in Teams, you know, the attachments can be stored in the cloud. There might be, you know, issues involving modern day attachments like uh, links versus, you know, true attachments. There's issues that you know, we encounter with like Slack in terms of being able to properly preserve data. It's not always as easy as preserving something in Microsoft Outlook. A lot of it depends on what your enterprise subscription levels are. So, you know, I find Slack can be more challenging than Teams. So there are all these additional considerations. It's not just emails. People are using chat messages, features. Um, people are recording videos. And those could be implicated in a particular matter. I have to say that I have not seen a huge increase or prevalence in the ephemeral messaging in our cases. I sort of took an informal survey with our e-discovery project managers, and they said the same, that they're not really seeing that as much, but we are seeing collaboration data all over the place. So yeah, we've definitely changed the, you know, there are some pretty extraordinary usage metrics out there about pre-pandemic and post-pandemic use of collaboration tools. And, you know, that's reflected in our cases. Wendy, have you seen a divide, you know, in terms of the cost and the complexity of e-discovery for the companies that were prepared to go remote? Like, you know, BDO, for instance, we already had teams in place. It was very easy to get our army, you know, at home, everything was in place versus the companies that weren't so prepared and, you know, very hurriedly had to put these systems in place and, you know, maybe didn't have all the, the right data governance in place and just kind of, you know, started putting these repositories out there and now stuff is all over the place. Yeah, that's the thing, right? So 
if you're not providing your employees with the tools to do their jobs, they're going to find the tools to do them, right? And that can include uses of personal devices that may not necessarily be sanctioned by the company. That can include use of these third-party messaging apps that we're going to talk about today that might be you know, consumer level and not enterprise level. So there's not a lot of controls over them administratively by the employer. And, you know, also it gets to not only just sort of the, what you described, which is, you know, a larger variety of storage locations, but it also gets to some critical analysis under certainly the federal rules about whether an employer has control over a particular device or has control over a particular storage location. If it's the employee's personal device or personal cloud account, personal application. So not only is there more difficulty in scoping and figuring out where all the, you know, identifying all the data storage locations, but it also can provide some perhaps frustrating analysis of whether or not those devices and those personal accounts are actually within the control of the employer in the event the employer has to preserve that information or produce it in litigation. So this is really interesting. So let's break that down a little bit, right? So you're talking about this rise of some of these applications, right? So Signal is one of those applications. They went from 10 million users in 2019 to 40 million in 2021. That's Telegram, crazy, yeah. yeah, Telegram, 515 million users to, in 2019 to 1.27 billion downloads 500 million users in 2021 whatsapp the same thing went from small billions to a lot of billions right snapchat same thing so how does a company though control that because if i've got my own phone and it's a byod phone or even if it's my own phone that's a corporate issued phone how is a company supposed to control whether or not i use signal or not clearly you can't control everything right you can do the best that you can in developing a robust BYOD and compliance program. And this, you know, the steps that I'm about to discuss are in the article that we you mentioned earlier. And I think the guidelines we provided were in the context of, you know, a memo that was released by the DOJ in terms of what prosecuting attorneys are going to be looking at if they are investigating your company. And, you know, whether or not you really you have a robust compliance program around employees use of personal devices and these third party messaging apps that companies don't really you know have control over and don't have the ability to monitor. And so really, I think what you have to do is a few things. So first, I think you need to sort of take an inventory of what you do have. And are these tools really meeting your employees needs on a day to day basis? You know, if they are, make sure that you're taking measures that you can properly administer those tools. In other words, have a good retention policy. Make sure you're able to preserve data when you need to in the event there is anticipated litigation or an investigation. And if you don't think your tools provide the kind of practical communication that your employees seem to need, and you would know that, you know, you may know that by learning that there is you know, employees are going off grid and using their own personal applications, just research and figure out what you can use on an enterprise level to try to dissuade employees from using, you know, the consumer level of an application. Because if you can find something that is practical and easy to use, 
it's even okay if it's an ephemeral messaging app, as long as you don't, you know, there's no pending litigation. You want to make sure you have the ability to have robust administrative controls around them. So you can set retention periods, you can suspend auto delete functions, or if needed for regulatory purposes, or, you know, if there is a duty to preserve. And then you want to have a written policy around the use of employees' personal devices at work and the messaging and collaboration platforms that can be used. And I think those corporate policies should, you know, should consider having some kind of provision that would allow for the company to review the personal devices upon request. That helps with being able to monitor the use of those devices and those applications. And if you need to perhaps collect the devices in the future for preservation or imaging or something like that. You want to make sure that part of, you know, your policy considers the company's retention obligations under regulatory or statutory provisions. So if you're in the broker-dealer industry, you're going to have SEC regulations that are going to dictate how long you have to retain certain communications. Other things you might want to consider are whether there are any privacy laws that you have to adhere to. So you want to keep that in mind as well. And then you want to make sure that you're training your employees, right? So you want to have a a training program that advises employees about risks associated with using unauthorized devices or communication platforms for work and trains them on what the company policies are in regard to that usage. And I think that the training should have a self-attestation component to it as well, right? So that there's some record or audit trail that the training has occurred and the employee agrees to adhere to the company's policies on BYOD and use of collaboration or messaging platforms. And then finally, you have to have some type of monitoring or enforced employee compliance. So Like I said, you'd want to be able to have some ability to monitor employees' personal devices, to assess compliance. You might want to even monitor, you know, employees' usage of the applications you're providing to them. Because if you're finding that some employees' usage is really low, that might be a notice trigger that, hey, that person is maybe using some unauthorized, unsanctioned tool, and we need to do a little follow-up here. And then finally, you have to have an enforcement component, right? So you have to enforce violations with appropriate discipline, and it should really be something that is enforced evenly across the board. So it would apply to senior level executives as well as to uh, lower level workers at the company. Wendy, that is excellent advice. And I encourage everyone to read the article for more information on each of those steps. I'm curious from your perspective and the conversations that you've had, you know, are companies considering the employee wellness aspect of this and, you know, some of these group chats and just, you know, having all day conversations through some of these messaging applications has kind of replaced just the the idle chatter in the office or the water cooler chat that you know, people used to have and just, you know, kind of that human connection that we kind of miss now that we're all working from home or or mostly working from home. You know, is that a consideration in any of this? You know, there's going to be some of that. There has to be some of that, right? Or your workplace isn't going to be an enjoyable place to be because you do develop beyond professional relationships. You have personal relationships with the people that you work with. You know, you have, you know, your work buddies and it's important to foster that kind of interaction to have a healthy, happy workplace. 
I have seen something recently in the last month or so on how some companies are scaling back on employees' ability to use collaboration tools. I don't know if you've seen that. There was a company in Canada, the name escapes me, but they were having days where you couldn't have video conferences. People were having too many video conferences and they were scaling back on the ability of employees to use the video conferencing tools. It wasn't an isolated company. There were a few. And so there must be some type of concern among employers that those video meetings were being abused on some level. So I don't know what that's about, but I remember reading an article about that. I think I think it was in January because I was actually doing some prep work for another presentation. So, you know, I haven't seen that personally. We don't really use a video chat tool just to chit chat, you know, you know, like a webinar or a video conferencing just to chit chat. I guess there is some concern out there that employees might be abusing it and using it excessively, which kind of surprised me, frankly. Yeah, I'm also a little surprised by that. And you kind of wonder yeah. what, what happened at that company, right? I don't know. It wasn't a, it wasn't an isolated company. There were a, a few. Well, Jared brings up an interesting point, right? We had a, uh, a wonderful guest also on the podcast a few uh, episodes ago, Christine Payne, who was talking a lot about wellness. And Jared's point is great. And so it makes me also wonder, from your perspective in working with clients, is there We'll get to some of the nefarious, right, and sinister utilizations of ephemeral messaging applications. But are there some good applications of these ephemeral messaging apps? Yeah, sure. There's definitely a business case to be made for using these tools, right? So there's an information governance sort of benefit to using these tools, right? The you know if you're using the you know uh, quickly delete function, you know, then you have less data. So you have less storage costs. So there's the benefit to that. And they have retention settings in them too. So, you know, there is uh, an ability to meet certain, you know, data disposition requirements under your information governance policy, but it can reduce storage costs. So that's one. It can reduce the amount of data that you have that may be subject to a cybersecurity threat. So you know, the less you have, the less, you know, arguably you're at risk for losing, you know, business data to some incident threat. And also there can be some benefit like under the GDPR, right? That you're minimizing the amount of data that you maintain and the GDPR, you know, other privacy rules have some of those, you know, components where you have to minimize the amount of data, personal data you keep about consumers or you keep about your employee. So there's definitely a business case to be made in favor of ephemeral messaging. And I don't think there's anything wrong with ephemeral messaging per se, right? Just generally, right? You can use it. You can, there's nothing wrong with using it. Like I said, I think you should have some policy written around it and the appropriate uses of it, but that would be for any type of tool you offer your, your employees to use. And I think folks get in trouble when there is, you know, a regulatory or statutory obligation to retain data for a certain period of time, or if you're under a duty to preserve. But that's true for any data, right? Any ESI that might need to be retained for a statutory regulatory reason, or if you, you know, anticipate lit it reasonably, anticipate litigation, you have to preserve it. So I think ephemeral data, messaging data, may have some unconscious bias against it because of its nature. It's meant to disappear. And so folks may, you know, attribute a nefarious intent just out of that fact, because we're used to email sort of being around, right? 
you know, it depends on your company's retention policy. But, you know, if I want to find an email from two years ago, I can find it, right, with a little search on my on my desktop. I think that courts and maybe lawyers to some degree have been slow to adopt some legal tech and just, you know, some of the new data types like uh, ephemeral messaging. It's slow to warm up to it. Like in the beginning, before we all started using active learning more regularly, there, you know, we treated that whole workflows as something different than if I were reviewing hard copy documents. So there were some cases that required a producing party to turn over not responsive documents in the context of a predictive, you know, coding project. Well, we would never require that in, you know, and I'm old enough to remember when it was only hard copy discovery, right? You would never require that unless there was some kind of foundational, you know, evidentiary foundation that, you know, the producing party didn't, you know, meet their discovery obligations, right? There's something, some kind of misconduct, potential misconduct going on. But so I think that courts, you know, and some lawyers are slow to warm up to certain new legal tech and new data types. And I think that, you know, there was a sort of a gut instinct that this ephemeral messaging can only be for nefarious purposes, right? Like, why would you need something to disappear? But I think that, uh, you know, the more popular it becomes, the more widely it becomes used, the more these issues get litigated, I think that, you know, that'll wear off a little bit. And just like now we're using active learning all the time, we are, you know, and other practicing attorneys are in this field are. You know, it's certainly more widely adopted than it was, say, when, you know, in 2009 or so. I, I think that as people become more comfortable with the, you know, the business case that I just made for the use of this data, then I, I think some of the sort of gut instinct to, you know, not trust it, you know, will diminish. If a company has uses ephemeral messaging, has a policy written around it, you know, is it something where they just started using it? to evade a, a duty to preserve, but you know, you've been using it for some period of time, you have policies around it, you're acting responsibly with it, you're retaining what you need when you need it. You know, that can go a long way if you ever the company ever finds itself, you know, trying to defend some discovery motion or trying to maybe answer the questions of maybe the DOJ and a government investigation. So I think that the distrust of this messaging apps will will start to to dwindle the more and more popular they become and the more courts have to resolve issues related to them. But you're never going to do well if you are using these tools to evade your, you know, your duty to preserve information, which a lot of the cases, spoliation cases that have come out in the last few years that, you know, it's some really egregious discovery misconduct. That's true. So, That's true. But, and, now, and now we're getting to something really interesting. And by the way, as a footnote, I'm old enough to know that on my first day at my law firm, uh, I was handed a dictaphone to dictate all my motions for summary judgment, Wendy. So I believe me, I get that. And I didn't know what a dictaphone was, by the way. I um, actually miss using a dictaphone. Uh, <laughs> My paralegal got so upset with me because I continuously said strike that on both sides of that little micro cassette <laughs> uh, tape. And she was very, very upset with me. She's like, please do never, never use that phrase again. I, I was just like two hours of listening to you. I'm like, I'm sorry. So you, what's interesting is this, is that you you bring up this, the point about, okay, if you're going to have ephemeral messaging, one, it's not per se bad. It's mm -hmm. okay to, it's okay to have it. Mm -hmm. So long as we have laid out a policy 
the policy, there's compliance around it. It's enforceable, right? Mm -hmm. And that if you could do all of those things correctly, then then maybe it's not a bad thing is, is really what I'm hearing and all the information governance. And we may even see a trend where we've got such a huge growth of data volumes over the last few years. Maybe ephemeral messaging may reverse that trend because, you know, we're running out of space or whatever it might be. But you bring up the other side of the coin. The other side is, well, wait a second. I could use this for a reason to evade my duty to preserve data. I have a hold in place. The company knows or reasonably should know that litigation is going to happen. We've got a hold. And here is this custodian named Jared. And he's like, nah. <laughs> he says, no. He says, I'm, I'm going to switch from email, switch from text messages, and I'm going to go over to Signal. Okay. And so we've yeah. seen some examples of that, mm -hmm. right? So if we take a look at Waymo versus Uber, if we take a look at Herzig versus Arkansas Foundation for Medical Care, more recently, take a look at Contra We Ride Corp, and we look at FTC versus Noland. These mm -hmm. are four prime examples, two in 2018, two in 2021, if my memory serves me right, that really start to get interesting because it talks about really what I found out of this, and I'm curious as your opinion, Wendy, what I found was this is actually really no different than all the other nefarious purposes to evade preservation requests and legitimate court orders to not destroy any data than we've seen going back to 2010 with Judge Paul Grimm with the Victor Stanley decision, which I, my memory shows me right, was like 183 page opinion in 2010, right? Yeah, exactly. So is it any it's the different- same principles. Yeah. Right. So talk about how that really is. At the end of the day, it, nefarious is nefarious. It doesn't matter if it's Slack. It doesn't matter if it's Teams. It doesn't matter if it's it's Snapchat or it doesn't matter if it's email or even a file. It's the same, isn't it? Correct. It's the same legal principles that are applied, right? If you're using these applications and you're under a duty to preserve, you got to change the auto delete settings. You have to take other measures to preserve data, you know, on these platforms, you issue litigation holds, you collect to preserve if you have to. So, you know, there's the same sort of control issues. If it's not an enterprise messaging application, then you may have control issues. It really depends on the jurisdiction you're in. It depends on whether there's any, you know, legal obligation for the employee to turn over their devices or their personal apps. So it's the same analysis. Some of those cases, like the FTC versus Nolan case, that was a case where they started using ephemeral messages to specifically avoid their duty to preserve. The company just found out that they were being investigated by the FTC, and almost immediately they abandoned their normal business communication platforms and started using, uh, I forget which one it was, but started using signal, yeah, signal started, using, signal, started yeah. using ephemeral messages that deleted. Right. And so, you know, you can't and do that. The, you couldn't do that with anything. I mean, they were uh, using proton mail as well. And proton exactly. Mail they were using is, proton and, mail. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You know, and a lot of these cases, there was a lot going on in terms of egregious discovery shenanigans, right? There was a lack of candor to the other side and to the court. There wasn't transparency. They weren't taking reasonable measures to preserve. Um, and I love that you've laid out kind of a playbook for companies who want to, for lack of a better you know, phrase, get into the ephemeral messaging game, right? Set some policies, set some controls. I come from a compliance world. Should they also be doing some testing? You've laid out some ways where they could discover, you know, if somebody's, you know, gone away from Teams, have they gone away from their email? You could 
just simply look at, you know, the volume of emails. Have they gone exactly. down over time? Yeah. You know, should, should companies be doing that? I think so, yes. Certainly, if you um, think that you might get in the DOJ's crosshairs, you know, in the criminal division, you'd want to do that. And so part of monitoring it is not only monitoring the activity of alternative sanctioned, you know, the emails and things like that. You want to, if an employee is not using the tools that you've provided to them, they're using something else. So I think you're duty bound if you're on notice that if you see that in part of the monitoring is, you know, checking that, auditing that. And if you're finding that certain employees are not using the tools that you've provided, they're using something. And I think you're duty bound to figure out what that is. And, you know, you, if you have a policy in place that allows you to request or demand the use of, of a personal device as part of that monitoring program, then, you know, you always have to give notice. You can't just request it and make it a part of your policy and have the employee sign off on it. You know, you can check to see perhaps what other kinds of tools they might be using. But yeah, I think you're duty bound. You just can't have these policies and not, you know, make sure that they're not being adhere to, particularly if you have a regulatory or statutory obligation to retain these messages. And that brings up some recent settlements that a number of around 10 or 12 or something like that, companies in, in financial services industry, uh, I think it was last year, they were not retaining the text messages and chat messages used by their employees. And so they had settlements with the SEC and with the Commodities Future Tradings Commission about settlement consent orders, about their failure to preserve and supervise employee business communications on employees' personal devices and third-party uh, messaging applications. You know, you, you really can't mess around with that. You could, you know, you could have, you know, awful fines and it's just not worth it. Wendy, you know, I'd be remiss if, if we didn't bring up on the show here. So everything that the three of us are talking about, like we're really obviously into this topic, right? You know, we, you know, from the legal, from the geeky to the compliance side. But, you know, one of the challenges that I've had when I've spoken to lawyers over the years is they say, well, this is all really great, Daniel, but this is why, you know, we'd hire you or we'll hire Jared, right? You guys will walk us through it, right? My job is the law. That's all I care about. I want to wipe my hands clean of all this nerdy stuff. Is that ethically really the right approach? Or is there some sort of guidelines that lawyers should be following under the model rules of professional responsibility that says otherwise? Yeah. So, you know, in my state and not in all states, but in my state, there is a component, there's an obligation under the rules of professional conduct to maintain some level of competency concerning technology and how it is implicated in the representation of, of a client, right? That can include hiring someone who knows better, right? So if you don't have the competence to navigate legal tech issues or e-discovery issues or forensic issues in your representation of your client, then you're duty bound to either find someone in your firm who does or engage a vendor who does or decline the representation. So the responsibility doesn't end there though, right? So in order to be competent, you can retain a vendor who does, right? Mm -hmm. But under the model rules, under 5.3b, you still have as, as a lawyer responsibility over Jared and I, for instance, right? Uh, correct. As, as outside lawyer, yes. As an so, outside litigation counsel, correct. So it's beyond just like, hey, okay, fine, I'll retain a vendor, then I'll be competent, right? But you can't just check a box there. It, yeah. it, you still have to supervise, correct? Yep. As outside litigation counsel, you do. But 
you know, there are instances where you are just going to need someone who has the technical skill set that you're probably never going to have, right? You're never, um, never going to know how to forensically collect or image a, a phone. I may, but it's highly doubtful. But yeah, you do. Our duty bound is outside the litigation council to be able to adequately supervise those that you've engaged in the area of e-discovery, including outside contract manage review teams. And there's another piece of this too, right? So it's not just now I'm ethically bound so I can be competent and I'm going to supervise, but there's other pieces at play too, especially in federal court. So we're talking about 16B, right? We're talking about being able to show up in both 16 and 26 to have a conference, to be able to speak coherently about the data landscape of our clients, right? So, and I think it was Judge Wayne Brazil who once said that somebody, an attorney who shows up to a Rule 16 conference and doesn't understand the data landscape essentially squanders an opportunity to really create a much more efficient approach to the entire e-discovery process because they don't know anything that's going on. So how does that help, right? So there is this whole other aspect of we need to make sure our client's house is in order and the lawyer needs to understand what the digital house looks like so they can show up to these meetings and understand and be able to speak intelligently about that. Is that correct? Absolutely. And and if you need to bring someone, for instance, someone in information technology from your client to assist with that, to make it a more thoughtful and effective conference, then you should do that. And sometimes judges are going to want you to do that. There was a great case, and it's funny that this was 2021, but there was a case, DR Distribution LLC versus uh, 21st Century Smoking. And uh, Judge Johnson says it is no longer amateur hour and it's way too late in the day for lawyers to expect to catch a break on e-discovery compliance because it's technically complex or resource demanding. And I think, Wendy, if there's anything that you've taught us thus far in, in this podcast, it's that it is our responsibility as lawyers to know it, to advise our clients, to help them set up this and not just help when they're reactively when a matter comes up, but to be able to help clients proactively in ensuring that their house is in order and that their employees are doing all the right thing is that's what I've gotten at. Is that about right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And you know, there are a lot of resources out there, right? To, you know, hone your skill set. If you are a, a new young lawyer or you are a practicing lawyer who feels like you need to brush up and at least be able to identify issues where you might need additional support. You know, the Sedona conference publications are out there. They're fantastic. And they cover a wide variety of topics, including the one we're talking about today, ephemeral messaging. There's a lot of free, good content out there, um, including webinars that are provided like service providers by B, like BDO, law firms, ACEDs, EDRM, a number of legal tech conferences every year that you can go to, like Legal uh, Legal Week is coming up. There's the Georgetown Advanced E-Discovery Institute. So there is no shortage of content to better understand issues you might encounter in e-discovery or forensic matters. As well as BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast, right, Wendy? Correct. <laughs> well, this has been a pleasure. This has been so much fun. Uh, we love to geek out on this stuff. Uh, you've been a phenomenal guest. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks guys for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. 
If you're enjoying these podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe for more episodes. Head over to BDO.com for a list of all our episodes, transcripts, resources cited, and links on how to get in touch with us and continue the conversation. Until next time, this has been another episode of BDO's Legal Tech Talk.